May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please sit down. First of all, can I express my gratitude to Serena and to the vestry and congregation here for your invitation to preach this morning. I've heard a lot about this parish and church over the years, and when I arrived this morning, the senior warden looked rather familiar. But as the church has always been just referred to in my hearing as St. Bees, I got frequently confused as to whether it was Bartholomew or Barnabas, uh, but now I know. I've been here, and my wife Lindsay is with me too this week, for a meeting of the governors of the Anglican Center in Rome and a meeting of the U.S. Friends of the Anglican Center. We've had meetings and fundraisers, and I've spent a lot of time trying to explain to people what an archdeacon actually is, but it's been a great blessing that this meeting has happened here, allowing us to visit family and to catch up with other people who we hadn't seen for a number of years. The Anglican Centre in Rome was founded in 1966, in those heady ecumenical days when barriers between Christians of different denominations began to break down, and the Second Vatican Council began to change the way that the Catholic Church related to other Christians. Archbishop Michael Ramsey, the 100th Archbishop of Canterbury, paid an official visit to Pope Paul VI, and they set up the first Anglican-Roman Catholic International Commission known as Archic, to engage in theological dialogue across difference in the hope of reconciliation. That hoped-for reconciliation is not yet fully realized. Just this year, I laid down my pen as the Anglican or Episcopal co-secretary of the third phase of Archic, Archic III. We're not yet fully reconciled but we are a million miles from where we were in the early 1960s. Since the 1960s, the Anglican Centre has acted as a place of welcome for Anglicans in Rome. It's a hidden gem within the Anglican Communion and well worth a visit. It's set in a rather grand set of apartments in a palazzo or palace in the historic centre of Rome and puts on courses and seminars, hosts meetings and meals and has weekly Anglican or Episcopal worship. The director, who is currently Archbishop Jan Ernest, a former Bishop of Mauritius and Archbishop of the Indian Ocean, is also the Archbishop of Canterbury's personal representative to the Holy See. Archbishop Jan is particularly good at this. His presence and his ability to network opens doors and builds relationships that enable others of us around the world to connect more easily both to Rome and to the Catholic Church in local areas. This has provoked a number of joint ventures on such things as human trafficking and modern slavery, on mission and evangelization, on peace building and reconciliation, not least in sub-Saharan Africa. And during the pandemic, high-level coordination and information sharing between Anglicans and Catholics working on supporting local churches in their ministry of service in a time of extreme vulnerability for the poor of the world. We've seen in recent years serendipitous matching of popes and archbishops of Canterbury in the two most recent pairings. In Archbishop Rowan Williams and Pope Benedict XVI, 
we had two of the greatest living European theologians. In their time, Archic was restarted after a gap, and theological dialogue once more came to the fore. In Archbishop Justin Welby and Pope Francis, we see two activists in the area of peace and reconciliation, and the care for the poor and the marginalized. They hosted together a retreat in Rome for the divided factions of South Sudan and promoted and encouraged moves to a lasting peace. They are still hoping to go together to visit South Sudan and push this further. And the Anglican Center plays a pivotal part in making these things happen. This is a great ministry and an important one. Pope John Paul II, many years ago, wrote an encyclical letter on Christian unity called Ut Unum Sint, that they may be one, echoing Jesus' words, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. How can we preach a gospel of reconciliation, asked Pope John Paul, when we are not ourselves reconciled? As Anglicans, or in the US and Scotland, Episcopalians, we're committed to seeking that reconciliation all round and at every level. From the family, neighborhood, towns and cities, nations and internationally. With the historic churches of Rome and the East, the Orthodox. With the new churches that spring up from time to time in our neighborhoods and cities. We look all round and at every level. The work of the Anglican Centre is at that international level, but that filters down. I know that visiting preachers like me always ask for support, but it is needed. And if you might be able to help out financially, please do let me know. I have some information in my bag. One of the things that is endlessly fascinating about Rome and the Catholic Church headquartered there is the interplay between church and state. Good First Amendment stuff, my fellow my fellow Americans, the, re the relation between religious leadership and statehood. The Vatican is a sovereign state, albeit a small one, and the Pope is a monarch, albeit in Pope Francis a very, very humble one. So much of the ecclesiastical architecture of Rome shouts out power as well as glory, the power and glory of God, and sometimes the power and glory of the church, or even of the Pope who built the particular building. We're gathered today at the very end of the church year on the feast of Christ the King when we reflect on the eternal glory of Christ enthroned as King or, as the penitent thief said, come into his kingdom. On both, both sides of the Atlantic, we've seen political and leadership changes this year. The US has just gone through the midterms with a flipping of the House of Representatives and a not wholly unexpected announcement about one particular candidacy for the presidency in the 2024 election. In the United Kingdom this autumn, we witnessed a change of prime minister. Two days later, and apparently unconnected, the death of the late Queen and the accession of King Charles III. And then before you know it, another change of prime minister. Changes in leadership, changes in politics, changes in persons. The death of Queen Elizabeth was one of those times in national life that everyone knew was going to happen, but no one was quite sure what it was going to feel like. The vast, vast majority of the United Kingdom's population had known no other head of state, and partly there was a sneaking suspicion that she might actually go on forever. 
the poor, I'm going to go off script now, so uh, uh, pardon me, people watching online. Uh, the, uh, the Dean of Windsor, St. George's Chapel, Windsor, uh, is well past retirement age, but he was hanging on and hanging on and hanging on. It was a case of, oh, just another Christmas, please, Dean, just another Easter. Um, I think now he, ha- he, he, he may well have uh, been released, um, but we, we've not yet had an announcement. But on the 8th of September... At 6.30pm, there was an announcement, and it said, the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. But that wasn't the end of the announcement. It went on, the King and the Queen, consort, will remain at Balmoral this evening, and will return to London tomorrow. The Queen had died, but there was no break. The monarchy didn't stop, it didn't need to be restarted. There was a seamless transition from queen to king. Now talk of monarchy and heredity and right might naturally be difficult on the ears in a republic like the United States of America. But let's cast our minds also to the 20th of January every fourth year in Washington, D.C. The occupant of the Oval Office changes, but the office remains. In an orderly transition of elected representatives, The post of, say, Member of Parliament for Canterbury or Senator for Tennessee continues, but the person filling the role may change. Even at times of change, there is some continuity. But for an individual person with power or authority, that power and authority is only ever ever temporary and only ever temporal. The kingdoms of this world are fleeting. They come and go. Over the centuries, we have seen that power, influence, and authority are fragile. They can be taken away at the ballot box or down the barrel of a gun and transferred to someone else. But today, our minds turn not primarily to monarchs or presidents, but to Christ the King. The kingdom, whether it's called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament, is one of the most frequently used words of Jesus and his most common theme. It's a difficult thing actually to describe or define. The kingdom is here and in eternity. It is now and it is not yet. It is present and at the same time it's something to be looked forward to. It's a wonderful treat, but something potentially to be feared. But wherever and however, it is not a kingdom that can be ignored or avoided. The kingdom is somewhere where people want to be. Remember the story of the disciples James and John, or their mother, depending on which gospel, asking about them being at the right and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom? Well, just hold on to that thought for a minute or two. Let's think through some of those kingdom contradictions. Jesus teaches us to pray that his Father's kingdom will come, and we do so every day. But he also says in Luke 17 that the kingdom of God is among you or within you. There is something here about the nature of time and God's presence. We look forward to being with God in eternity, but God's presence is among us through the Holy Spirit in our prayers and in our hearts now. The kingdom, we hear, has characteristics of justice and peace, of equity and equality, of love and dignity. But we are also called to make those kingdom values real where we are here here and now. Yes, the kingdom in its fullness will come when Christ comes again, 
But again, yes, let's try and make him recognize this place when he does come by making our world more like he would have it be, turning the now, the not yet into now, and from the now, hoping for the not yet. Likewise, the kingdom is a place where all are welcomed and valued, where the lost sheep is sought and found, and the nothing, nothing left unturned or unswept until the lost coin is retrieved. The kingdom is a kingdom where peoples are reconciled and all nations come to worship at God's feet. It's easy to say that equity and justice and reconciliation are kingdom ideals and only for eternity. But Jesus taught us to pray for the coming of the kingdom so we can strive to make these things happen now too. At its base, the kingdom is attractive. It's good news. Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom to people in Matthew 9 and tells his disciples to do the same. But he doesn't mince his words. There may be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many of the things that in our sin we hold dear, we may need to shed to be reconciled to the kingdom. We need to keep our lamps trimmed and filled, according to Matthew 25, lest we be shut out. Next week it will be Advent, and the Advent themes of judgment and expectation will be with us once more. But ultimately, God's will through Jesus Christ is for us to be with him. As the prophet Daniel prayed, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord, though we have rebelled against him. God is a God of mercy. In the kingdom, the Prince of Peace is enthroned as king. Earlier on, I pointed out the difference between an office that is continuous and the person holding that office, who is transient and temporary. In Christ, person and office are combined. The role of Christ the King is only and forever held by Jesus. The Word made flesh, the light of the world, the Prince of Peace. But also, just remember that I asked you to hold on to that thought about James and John and who would be on the right or left of Christ when he came into his kingdom. Well, let's remember the gospel reading that we heard this morning. Who was on the right and on the left? The thieves, one penitent, the other unrepentant. Jesus came into his kingdom through his suffering and his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection and ascension. He's accompanied and flanked, not by the grand and the ambitious, but by sinners, by the suffering, the abased, and the demeaned. And that, interestingly, is good news. Jesus draws the whole of creation to the kingdom. Jesus invites us all to be citizens of eternity, the people of the city of God, the kingdom of heaven, with him, the one who was abased on the cross, enthroned on the throne, as the eternal Lord of all. Amen and amen.